Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of My Perspective Stories of Recovery Experiences. My name is Malcolm Choate. The effects of family and domestic violence are devastating. It is a blight on our society, and we must do everything that we can to get rid of that blight. For those who have been through the experience, it can have life-lasting consequences. Today on My Perspective, Stories of Recovery Experiences, we will be hearing from Lisa, a person who has experienced the trauma of family and domestic violence, who has overcome those traumas and who has experienced recovery. We will not be discussing the violence that was perpetrated against her. Nonetheless, I need to warn listeners that this podcast deals with a sensitive topic and it may be troubling and disturbing for some people. Lisa, welcome to My Perspective, Stories of Recovery Experiences. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Malcolm. It's nice to be here with you. Thank you. There is so much to talk about. Lisa, let's start with the present. You're employed by the Better Health Generation as a quality manager. Um, and you also have work experience as an occupational therapist, and you're applying that experience in your role as a quality manager. And these are important roles, but of course, you are more than that. You're married. You were married last year, I think, in what you described as a surprise elopement at your property on the Sunshine Coast. Is that right? We did, we did. So we had sort of planned to um, get married, have our families and everything be there. And then with COVID, things just get, kept getting pushed back. So we thought, look, it, it was both of our second marriages and we did want it to be really just about our little family. So we thought, why not surprise our children and um and some of we had one guest as well who was a um, who was going to be our witness. So we surprised them all with a little elopement at our um, beautiful little property that we have here on the coast. Sounds lovely. Gorgeous. Yeah. And you've got three three children, is that right? That's right. So I'm part of a little blended family. So my daughter Winnie is six. And then Matt has a daughter who's 10. And together we have a little baby, Sunny, who has just turned 19 months old. Oh, that's lovely. Great age. Great age for all of them, actually. Yes, toddlers. They're trying. <laughs> yeah. So how would you describe your life at the moment? I think the words I would use to describe my life at the moment would be very much, I just feel quite peaceful and at ease. Um, there's a lot of play and a lot of laugh in our, a laughs in our family. And um, I feel very safe. And if anything, I feel like I lead this life that is full of a lot of abundance and connection, which, which is really important to me. It sounds wonderful. But unfortunately, Lisa, it has not always been that way for you. I think you've been through some pretty dark experiences. I, I definitely have. And I think that, you know, that um, old adage about um, everybody is fighting a, balance, uh, a battle we know nothing about. And I, I think that's definitely, definitely true, especially in my case. I've sort of kept my um, past pretty under wraps for a, a, um, a long time. It actually took me quite a while just to come to terms with my experiences. 
So in my early 30s, I met the man of my dreams. I was working as an OT in a coal mine out in Moranbah in Queensland, and he was a, um, a rigger. So we met and we just fell madly in love. He was you know, this huge unit of a man. He was very blokey, very much into fitness and the gym. But then he had this really lovely, soft, sweet side. He even used to write me poetry and um, like all the time. And I gave him the nickname Lovebird. And he, he literally wore that name with pride. So he got a permanent marker and wrote his nickname Lovebird on his hard hat. And his friends would often sort of tease him about all of that. And his response, I remember, it was always the same. And he said that he didn't care how much, how, how the world knew how much he loved me. So um, we had this gorgeous proposal. We went to Sydney for a weekend for um, New Year's Eve. So he proposed down to me on the, at the uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. And for this, you know, period, I really felt like our, our relationship was like magic. So um, we sort of got engaged and then we decided, hey, let's let's head off from Moranbah. We've done enough of the, the coal mining gig and we decided to go to Sydney simply because neither of us had ever lived there before and it was completely the opposite of what we both knew. So we were really excited. I landed this amazing job with a really well-known op rehab company and um, he'd organised work. All of that was happening. It was all in the pipeline and I just felt... Like together we were going on this great adventure and we were going to be able to to do anything together and then of course reality set in so in the first few months after arriving in Sydney things just started to get tough so he was his work hadn't panned out the way he wanted to and he was struggling to find permanent work so I became the sole breadwinner and that really affected him and he just really started to to drink more he would go out he'd sort of sometimes go missing he started to experience these really major mood shifts and very slowly very slowly that really happy go lucky guy who i knew started to become someone else and i did of course encourage him to get help and we went to his gp together we got him on some medication he was seeing a counselor and together we just sort of pushed on and i was so we were so in love and that's of course what you would do to support that person that you love so even though things was sort of taking a turn for the worse, I just held on to that thought that one day it would all get better and it would go back to what it once was. Not every day was a difficult day. Some nights we still, you know, we went out for dinner, we went on dates, we danced in our kitchen, we laughed, we held hands, we were the best of friends. And we did soon after that get married. But as time went on, those good days became fewer and far between. So we started to argue more and the arguments really started to escalate. And, you know, we had screaming matches that ended with holes in the walls. And next minute I had somebody, you know, he hit my, he hit my face and then all of a sudden he kicked my stomach and things just got worse and worse. And, you know, we had the police involved. Our parents were, they weren't aware of everything that was happening but they were definitely aware that something was going on because obviously the police also contacted them. So they were beside themselves with worry. We lived interstate, so we didn't have anyone sort of close by, any of our family who could sort of come and, 
and intervene. I had lots of acquaintances in Sydney, but I found it really difficult to form friendships with what was going on. Um, I remember being really embarrassed of the state of my apartment. So I just, I could never invite anyone back. We didn't entertain at home. I just had all these pictures over the walls that were kind of covering all of the holes and the damage. And if I ever did go out to a team dinner or any sort of social activity, my work always had these great social events. Um, he would just be on my phone and the texting and the calls would be incessant. So it became easier just to say no to invitations and my world sort of became smaller and smaller. And I do, I think back on that time and I am just still stunned at how I was able to keep everything together for work. So every day I turned up to work and I absolutely killed it. I was one of the best performers in the company and I was doing all of that despite the manic calls from him during the day. Like every moment of the day, I'd be about to go into an assessment and my phone would be beeping and buzzing and you'd turn it off. And as soon as I'd turn it on again, it would do all the same, the same stuff again. And I also, I didn't have stable, stable accommodation. So oftentimes I was too scared to go home because of the phone calls that would have happened during the day at work. So I would have to try and organise a motel for myself. I also, I remember times where I was really hungry because he sort of all of a sudden started taking quite a bit of control over, over the money. So I had my own account, but I paid for all the bills. I gave him money if he needed money. But then my account kept on getting hacked into and it, it was him and my money was just getting drained. So sometimes I, I would go to work and I wouldn't have eaten, you know, in the past 24 hours. So it's just amazing to me that I was able to continue on at this high level of performance where my basic needs weren't being met. That certainly sounds like it was exceedingly difficult or almost impossibly difficult for you and yet you did persevere. And as you say, in your work life, you were very successful. I mm. think things came to a head after the birth of your daughter. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that, that's right. We had sort of talked of having a baby and I knew it was something that he really wanted. I'd had some previous medical issues, so I wasn't sure that it was going to be something, you know, that was possible for me and he knew that. But then surprisingly, I found out I was pregnant. And, you know, normally when people, you know, have a look at the stick and it's positive, it's lots of jumping up and down and excitement. And my first reaction was to cry. I was just in this state of absolute disbelief. And he, of course, was really, really happy. And for a brief period of time, I thought, this is it. We're, we're going to be okay. He's going to be okay. And that sort of lasted... Oh, I'm, matter of you know a week and then we were dealing with all the same things except now I wasn't going to work there weren't I wasn't going to see clients I was just at home with this little baby and I felt so vulnerable at that time and I remember one evening like um, my little girl she just started smiling and I would remember taking pictures of her with these big smiles and then you know being all excited about that and then he came home he was working casually so he'd come home from from work and he just 
was in, I hadn't really seen him like that before. Like I'd seen him very heightened, but he was, I don't know what had happened, but he definitely had a very difficult day. And he was just, I just remember his face being so red and he was so angry and we argued and I told him, look, you need to leave. And I picked up my phone to call for help to get him out. And he sort of threatened to throw myself and our little four-week baby over our six-storey balcony. And I just didn't think he was going to do that because I just couldn't imagine it. And then I hit that call button and that's when he lunged at us and he grabbed us and we fell backwards sort of from our lounge out onto those outdoor tiles. And my little baby had just been screaming right up until that moment. And then when we hit the tiles, she stopped. She was so quiet. You could have cut the silence with a knife and... Luckily, she wasn't hurt. She was just in shock. Um, And I remember him just leaving, like looking at me and just saying, you're going to leave me now. And at that point, I knew that I had to get out because it wasn't just about he and I anymore. It was about that little girl in my arms. And so you did leave. I think you returned home to Queensland to be with your parents. Is that right? Yeah, I did. And... That was really difficult because, you know, I've been so independent my whole life. I've had my own family, my own home, and then and my own money. And then all of a sudden I'm staying, you know, in the spare bedroom of my parents' place in a single bed with, you know, Winnie on the in a porticot at my feet and not having enough money to buy nappies. I just felt at the lowest of the lows. And my mother was you know, because I sort of slowly opened up to her about some of the things that had been going on. And of course, he was still calling me every moment of the day, saying he was going to get to us and that he loved me and he was sorry. And, you know, a lot of it, he sort of thought were my, you know, my parents getting into my head. And, you know, I was making more of a drama of things than there needed to be. And just he wanted his family back. And, and my mother really pushed me to file for an AVO. And I, I fought her on that every, every, every day um, because I just, I didn't see myself as being that woman or being in that situation. I couldn't, I just couldn't align myself with a, being a woman in a situation of domestic violence. And for a long time, I just sort of thought that maybe I was being, I was overreacting and being a bit dramatic about everything, even at that point. So, yeah, I think those those ideas about who I thought this woman was, this, you know, what a, a woman in a domestic violence situation look like really impaired my ability to, to take action and, and to move forward. I felt very trapped and lost at that point. You got through that stage and you started to see yourself in a different way. Is that right? Um, After about six years, actually, Malcolm, I, yeah, this is actually the time I've ever spoken about the experience uh, that I've had. This is, I've really only in the last probably 12 months have been able to say the situation is what it was. It was a, a, a situation of domestic violence. So, at the time, I did, I did end up putting through that order, and I remember when it went to to court, his response was to acknowledge that 
acknowledged that and said, yes, those things did happen and that he wanted to, to get help and to get better. So that to me, I think that acknowledgement, even though it came from him, it just seemed really important to me. So I kind of, I felt like I, I can, I can move past this is, this is something that I can recover from. And I think it started to, after that, I mean, I really had to challenge my perception of who a woman was in, in a situation of domestic violence. I, as I said, I never identified as that because I just thought to myself, look, these, these people in these situations, like I, I felt like they were, they were t- it sounds awful, but I felt like, no, they're, they're, they must be stupid. Like who in their right mind would stay with a monster who's risking, you know, or there's a risk of harm there to themselves or their children. Like I just, you know, I saw myself as being a really good mom, a highly educated woman. I was brought up well. I was from a good home. Like how could I have let myself get into this situation? How could I have let this occur? So there was so much to me, there were so many feelings of, of guilt around this. I felt like it was my fault that I was there and really, it, as I said, it's taken me the past, you know, five or six years to come to a point where I say, you know what, I was, I was that woman and it's not so much about being a particular type of person. It's just, it can happen to anybody and I truly understand that now and nobody sort of um, runs out and wants to meet uh, a monster and I don't believe that he was a monster. He did monstrous things. And in my situation, you know, it was largely due to him having his own mental health battles. And then that led into drug abuse and that manifested as domestic violence. So you said, Lisa, that it was important for you to have that acknowledgement, that external acknowledgement, and it was also important for you to challenge yourself. Would you say that, in a sense, you also, through that challenging experience, did you start to acknowledge who you were yourself? Yes, absolutely. And I think part of my personality, I've always been, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, I like to have all my um, ducks in a row. So when I looked at my, those old perceptions of what I thought this woman was supposed to look like, like that's why it was difficult for me. I was like, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing like that. But as soon as I sort of began to really understand domestic violence and I began to unpack that a bit more, I could see that, yes, there are definitely groups of people who are more at risk of being in this situation, but this was not my fault. This was not my doing. This was a situation that I found myself in. This journey that you've been on has been a learning experience for you. I'm sure that there has been a lot that you've learned. Are there some key lessons that have come out of this experience for you? Yes, absolutely. And I feel like I've learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about relationships and mental health. And I I don't think we could sort of capture it all today, like the lessons that I've learned, but I just wanted to share, I suppose, a couple of my 
key discoveries and and probably the biggest is connection is the opposite of mental illness the connection piece is huge if you are connected to your life to others to meaningful occupations you are mentally healthy that's a big part of being mentally healthy but if that connection piece gets lost you can often find yourself in um, in in mental illness nobody you know you don't have a, a lovely connected um, respectful relationship where one partner attacks the other those two things don't go together however if you've got a lack of connection if you've got mental health issues then you can better understand, I suppose, or see the association between those things and and acts of domestic violence. And I think there's a lot of things in my situation that fed into that domestic violence. So he was, I didn't sort of find out until after his death, but he was a habitual drug user, heavy drugs, hard drugs. And that obviously affected the way his brain functioned which then impacted on his behaviour and how he acted towards me. So that that would be one of my key things. It's connection is such an important piece because domestic violence in my situation was almost more a symptom, I suppose, of an underlying severe mental illness. I think the other thing is domestic violence is such a complex issue and it just touches so many more people than just the two in a relationship. So it's taken me a really long time, I think, to speak about, you know, that situation because I love my extended family so much. So his parents are still, they are my family. They're very much involved in our lives now. And I don't know where I would be without them. They're they're beautiful, beautiful people. And I always wanted to protect them, I suppose, because obviously they, they didn't want their son to act this way, to be this way, to have his life end this way. And I've always, yeah, really tried to protect them and by not speaking my truth. And then recently I've had a a great, a really important conversation with my mother-in-law about that, even just about doing this podcast today. And she she shared with me her feelings on it. Um, So her her feeling like she's, she's lacked as a mother, to him that she is embarrassed, um, that she is saddened, that she feels guilt. So all of those things, all the same things that I experience, just they're they're another side of the same coin. But both of us, you know, our families believe that speaking about it is one of the ways that we can help really build the connection piece and build the understanding piece because at the end of the day, a stigma sucks. And the ways in which we involve, uh, we sort of view people that are involved in these domestic violence situations, they just, they, they have to change. And if they don't change, we're never going to experience a different outcome. So, so I was so, I was so stuck in my relationship because I did not have the awareness 
to see what was actually going on. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have the awareness that I was living this situation of domestic violence. I didn't want to be associated with that person because that was a an untrue and preconceived notion. But without good conversation, without normalising the, I'm not normalising the behaviour, I'm normalising the fact that anybody could end up in this situation. You don't have to be from, you know, a certain background, a certain demographic. It can literally happen to anyone and these things don't, or in my situation, this did not happen overnight. This was the course of years and to see the person you love become something else is so, it is just so sad. Lucy, you've made the comment that this is something that could happen to anyone. And whilst that's true, the statistics demonstrate that it is more likely to happen to certain people. Isn't that right? It is. So um, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, there's one in six women have experienced physical or sexual violence in a current or previous relationship and one in four have experienced emotional abuse and men are also affected. So the rates of, of women, it, it is a bit higher um, than it is for men, but men absolutely can be affected. I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm speaking this podcast on, you know, just in regards to my own experience as a young woman, definitely men can also find themselves in this situation. So it can be physical, it can be sexual, it can be emotional. And that's a really important point to make. If you look back on the person that you were six or more years ago, would that person have been able to come to the realisations that you eventually came to? Or did you have to go through a process, a recovery or transformation process before you could reach the conclusions that you ultimately reached? Oh, I would love to say that I could go back and, and be more aware, handle it differently. But honestly, I don't think I could have. I, I think really going through this experience has been what has helped me uncover all of these, these things for, my, for myself. And I, I really, I don't believe in my own situation, in my own circumstances, that I could have entered that period of recovery without awareness. And it really did take this situation, unfortunately, to force me into that awareness. So a lot of my efforts um, in my own recovery have really been directed at that, at just becoming more aware. And there's a huge piece just in that. And I don't think people should ever dismiss that. It's very important to increase your own awareness. And as I said, it's taken me upwards of five years to be able to do that. So to me, when I sort of think of recovery, it is that ability to to lean into things that are frightening, that are uncomfortable, that are traumatic, and to trust my body's ability to keep me safe whilst doing so. So when I talk about leaning in, I'm really talking about, for, for many years, I, I pushed these feelings aside. I, I did not want to, to deal with them. They were messy and, and scary. So, of course, I didn't want to think about them. And I think that's why I had this, you know, period of denial for so long. That, of course, was helped along by the fact that I felt like I had to protect 
close friends and family in this. But that was not helpful to me. So having all of these, you know, denied thoughts and feelings, they just sit in your body. And for me, being able to become more aware, to actually go and, and dive into those thoughts, to sit with those feelings and just to process them and allow them to pass through my body has been really, really important. So I'm a huge believer in mindfulness and meditation. But the other piece that it's taken me time to do as well, not actually as long as the awareness. The awareness has taken me longer, but something that I was able to, to do that I absolutely needed to do in this situation for my own recovery was to be able to forgive. And I've even had my own family say to me, how could you forgive somebody who did that to you? How could you, how could you do that? All of the things that he put you through. I just really understand now that forgiveness doesn't mean to condone someone's behaviour. But it does mean I, I just don't have to carry that shit around with me anymore. It doesn't have to, those behaviours don't have to destroy me. I can now forgive, which means I let all of that energy just sit and it's it's where it needs to be and I can, you know, direct my efforts elsewhere and move and progress and grow and I don't have to harbour or be sort of chained or trapped to an event or an experience anymore. And I think I do also understand that people are neither neither good nor bad. Behaviours are good or, or good or bad, but, but people aren't. People are just people and everybody's quite complex. So the, the awareness and the forgiveness have been so important for me in being able to come out the other side of this. Awareness and forgiveness, and also, as you said, the ability to, I think you put it as leaning into the emotion, yeah. being able to recognise what's going on for yourself and to sit with that, to be aware of that and just to sit with that yeah. and to trust, to trust yourself, I suppose. Exactly. Keep yeah. yourself safe. Is that right? Absolutely. Because I think it's, it's not about, I, I wasn't dwelling on things, but I was recognising a sensation in my body, a thought in my head, a story in my head, and I was able just to sort of kindly and lovingly give it some space and attention to let it be rather than constantly trying to force it down. And almost, you know, when somebody says, you know, don't touch the red button, all you want to do is touch the red button. So that's what I felt like I was doing to myself. I was constantly in this battle with don't think about that. Don't remember about that. If you do that, you're just going to trap yourself there or um, that feels awful. You don't want to get stuck there. And being able to do, you know, the leaning in and the mindfulness and the meditation has really just allowed me to give space and attention to the thoughts and the sensations in my body that need it without getting wrapped up in it. So I don't, I don't even think about the red button anymore. I'm sitting here listening to you, Lisa, and I'm just trying to imagine myself, not in your situation, because I could never do that, but I could... I'm trying to imagine myself in another situation where I had to forgive someone for something. And I think I would find it so difficult. 
In fact, I think it might even be impossible. I don't know how you, I don't know how you could have done it. It was, it was, um, it was really difficult. But as I said, it wasn't as difficult or it didn't take me as long to do as the awareness bit. And I think um, there's lots of like beautiful, you know, um, stories to sort of help, I think, move people in the right way when it comes to forgiveness. So I did after his, after his death, um, I did um, with the support of my wonderful employer went and did some grief counselling. Um, and that was something that I that I got out of that. And I remember my um, psychologist told me the story of um, two Buddhist monks who were, you know, trying to make their way, um, you know, to uh, to a shrine or to, you know, to help them, you know, reach nirvana and things like that. And so we've got these two Buddhist monks walking along on this journey, and they were meant to um, not speak the entire way. Um, no matter what happened, they weren't allowed to speak. And then one of the Buddhist monks, um, they they met an old lady. Actually, stop there, Malcolm. I'm trying to think what the story was. I'm trying to think what it is. Um, Let's rewind a bit, shall we? Yeah, I'm just trying to think what it was. But basically, <laughs> okay, I'll start again. Um, Where from? Where from? I think just in regards to the forgiveness being it was so difficult to do, yep. but it didn't actually take me as long to okay. do. Okay, so then. if you want to start from, from the, yeah, let's just start this section again from there. That's fine. Yep. When you're ready. So forgiveness was incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult, um, and I needed the support of um, a grief counsellor and a psychologist in order to help me with that. Um, but the bit that took me the longest was the awareness because you've actually got to turn inwards and you've got to look at yourself. So it's not about anybody else. It's really about you. And, and so that, that there was a lot of work in there for me, but in terms of the forgiveness, once I, once I came to understand and really understand that forgiveness it seems, you know, a lot of people sort of um, think it means the same thing as, you know, forgiving is it's, it's okay, it's all right. And forgiveness is not that. Forgive, forgiveness is just um, being able to let that energy that you're putting into something go. So you have space to then move forward. Um, so, and I would sometimes tell myself that I am, you know, I'm not forgiving him for the things he did to me and the things that he did to our infant. I am just forgiving the situation and I don't need to be chained to it anymore. I think also, you know, there's a closure piece there. I... I always thought it was very difficult because of course he passed away because of an, an accidental overdose um, shortly after all of this happened, um, shortly after I left. I, you don't have that chance to ask questions of somebody. So you're like, oh, how can I ever get closure? I'm never going to know. And what I've also come to understand is closure, it's, you know, it's a bit of a, um, a made-up concept, I think. Um, because if you've got, if you ask somebody a question, they give you a response and then, you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to have another question. So where does it end? I think closure is something you give to yourself. And 
part of doing that for me was to um, to give myself that closure, to know that there were things that I will never have answers to and to just sort of take that in and go, it is what it is. Um, I give myself that closure. And I actually said that to myself. I give myself this. And that also helped me to to forgive the situation because I I didn't want to be there for the rest of my life in that place of hurt. I feel like if there's if there's anger, if there's you know you want to um, uh, if you can't let something go, like you're always going to be attached to it. Um, and I didn't want to be attached to it anymore. I wanted to just focus on my daughter and myself and be able to rebuild our lives. So, Lisa, you've spoken about some of the things that have helped you in this journey of recovery, including um, meeting up. Sorry, Lisa, let me do that, that bit again. Mm-hmm. Lisa, you've spoken about supports being there for you, formal supports, counsellors, etc., as well as informal supports, family and friends, and work. What else has helped you in this journey of recovery? I actually have really um, tried to understand um, domestic violence, substance abuse, and mental illness from a deeper level. Um, So I've actually gone and I have spoken to people who are experts in those things. Um, I remember for for me, one of my big questions was, you know, didn't he love us enough to get help for his substance abuse, which might have then assisted him with his mental illness and maybe that situation of domestic violence wouldn't have existed. So I did think that like, why couldn't he have loved us enough? Um, and I really sort of struggled with that. And then I met a really amazing um, priest and um, grief counsellor. And he spoke to me about the, um, the physiology of the brain and what the brain looks like um, when somebody has, you know, is a substance abuser, when somebody has, you know, really severe mental illness. So I actually looked at images of these different MRIs of these brains. So a normal healthy brain, um, one with a a brain injury, a traumatic brain injury, and the other one was the um, the brain of somebody who who had mental health um, issues and substance abuse issues. So it just shocked me to see those images. So being, you know, I'm a really rational thinker and I'm a very logical thinker so in my mind and uh, I could actually see the difference in these three brains so the one that had the brain injury and the one that had the substance abuse um, problem those brains look the same so there was no there was no light in the prefrontal cortex which does all of your thinking your insight your impulse control all those things were completely switched off and everything was coming from the emotional centers so to me I was like okay it wasn't about the fact that he didn't love us enough 
it was about the fact that he basically had a brain injury that he needed treatment to overcome. And, and that helped me a lot as well. So, um, and also, as I said, in regards to the domestic violence, I kind of just went deeper with that and went, well, you know, who, who does experience domestic violence? How, how is it, um, you know, how are these things, how do they present? How do people get through them? Um, how do you acknowledge this yourself? Because a lot, of, a lot of it when it comes to the domestic violence was about me being in denial that I had been in this relationship. Um, so I, I actually sought out people who um, had experienced or had experience with those things to really sort of, I don't know, like equip myself with all the knowledge so I understood it um, theoretically as well as from my own experience and that helped me make more sense of what I'd gone through and then knowledge is power. So now I was, I sort of feel able to speak about it because I feel it is so important to have these conversations because without these conversations, these things just stay in the dark and I've been in the dark and I don't want anybody else to sit there and to deny um, themselves and to not seek help um, because it doesn't matter how many people, you know, my, as I said, my mother was saying to me, this is what this, you know, this is domestic violence. He is abusing you and had been saying that to me for quite some time. And I was just, no, 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 no. Um, and if I had if I had felt more able to speak about it, if I had felt less guilt, less shame, less embarrassment about my situation, I could have spoken to someone about it. I could have been assisted to get help, but I didn't. And I couldn't at that time. That was something that had to wait. You had to wait. That was something that could only happen with the passing of time when you develop that acknowledgement within yourself but also that understanding of what was happening yes and I think you know there's there were people you know people do speak out about domestic violence um but not enough and um there was nobody that I could really relate to that spoke out about domestic violence and I think being an OT being an allied health professional like these things aren't supposed to happen to us. That's what I thought. We're not meant to have mental illnesses. We're not meant to get, you know, like you think all of these things about yourselves that just aren't true. Um, but maybe if, if more professionals spoke about it, more, um, more OTs, more, uh, more psychs, you know, because it can happen to, to anybody. As we said, there are um, definitely groups of people who are more prone or who are more at risk of this happening. Um, but we need to take some of those awful stigmas away um, from people involved in domestic violence situations. We need to make it okay for people to be able to step up and say, this doesn't feel right to me, um, but I was too embarrassed to. Lisa, you've spoken about the importance of connection and the importance of acknowledgement and of understanding and the importance of forgiveness and also the importance of just sitting with the emotion, which I suppose could be summed up in one word, which is acceptance. There's yeah. some other concepts within recovery, and they include ideas of empowerment and of hope. I'm just wondering how those concepts, that is empowerment and hope, have played out in your life. 
the the one the um you know when we talk about hope that's an interesting one because you know after all this happened it was sort of um a matter of months later um you know my husband died from his substance abuse as i as i mentioned so really after that not only had i gone through grieving the loss of my family of the future that i was hoping to have with this person um grieving the loss of my independence my financial independence um so there was a a huge grief process in there for me and i didn't i hadn't even gotten to the hope bit yet when he suddenly died um and you know after hearing that news um and having the shock of that um especially with all of these questions being unanswered um that also sent me to another spiral of grief <laughs> and um and to what I was later diagnosed with having post traumatic stress disorder so those waves kind of crashed on me and i sometimes look at my little 6 year old now and i just think wow what what a gift had it not been for you i don't know where i would be she really did help to give me some hope so she in a way made me get up every morning and do things and I, i was just so caught up in my grief yet i still knew that i had to get up in the morning and be a mother to this you know she was only a few months old um and also in that hope bit i just kind of went look i'm i'm so lost in myself i'm so lost in myself and i don't know anybody else who's in this situation um and that made me feel really alone So one thing I did and it kind of sounds a little morbid is I went looking for people. I went looking for people who kind of handled all this big shit in their lives. Um have you do you know Matt uh, Gurkinski's story? I hope I'm saying his name right. The the wonderful chef. Sorry, who was that? Max Matt Gurkinski. He's a a wonderful um chef. He's actually on the Sunshine Coast, but he um had lost his his entire family his wife and oh yes yes um, his babies in a house yes. fire and he was terribly burned mm. um and i thought wow like even talking about him now i get tingles and i think how how the hell do you get up after that mm. like i i'm still myself um i'm not physically injured i have a healthy um baby like i cannot imagine losing a child So I kind of I looked at that and Terina Pitt and all these amazing inspiring people who had been through really really awful stuff and and that gave me hope that's where I got my first glimmers of hope because I couldn't find that hope myself I had to go out and I had to look for it with other people and then I thought look if you can do this I can do it too and all I did is after his death I remember I made I woke up one morning and i made myself a promise and it was just so simple and my promise was that i was going to create the most beautiful life i could for my daughter and i that's it i just said that and i said that to myself every day for years i said it to myself more often on the days that were harder um because that's what i clung to and then after that really all i did was i did all the little things 
the little things are so important. So I showed up. Um, the degree in which I was present in a day varied, but I always had that intention there, that, that intention to create that beautiful life. So I got up in the morning, I made my bed, I showered, I started eating food that was, you know, good for me because I, you know, had really not cared about myself and I hadn't been eating and, you know, so I started to nourish my body. I went out, I made sure I went outside every single day because sunshine and vitamin D, those things are just so important and they help, you know, they helped me to be mentally well and to be spending time in nature was very grounding for me. And I, you know, I bathed Winnie and I dressed her and I fed her. And then you just, I brushed my teeth like Malcolm, they were just the little things. And the thing was, when I was in the throes of my grief and my despair, all the little things I was not doing. Um, so I was like, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do all the little activities of daily living. I am going to do those things. Um, and then as I started to do those and I built a routine, once I had a basic routine of just looking after myself and my child, I built on that. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym because that's going to help me, you know, feel better about myself. It's going to help me feel stronger. And then once I did that, I was able to sort of accept help from my family and my friends and my employer and even total strangers. I opened myself up to accepting help, whereas before I hadn't even heard. I had not even heard their, you know, their, um, you know, their, them sort of ask it, you know, what's the word? Sorry, I've lost. Um, their offers. So I hadn't even heard their offers of help. But after I started to establish a routine, I started to hear those offers. And then I didn't just hear them, I started to accept them. And that's where I, I found my connection again, um, which was the bit that I had been missing because I had felt so alone. So I did all of the little things and I built on all of the little things. And then eventually I got to a point um, where I felt like I wasn't just surviving, but I was thriving again. Um, so, yes, just for anyone who, who feels lost, I, in my experience, there isn't any silver bullet to recovery. There's no one big thing you do. There's just sort of one foot in front of the other for as long as it takes you to stop looking at your feet. So recovery is a journey of small steps, a multitude of small steps rather than big leaps. Absolutely. That, what, that's what it was for me, yes. Lisa, I'm not going to ask you that other question about the clinicians, okay? I think this is more than enough. Um, Are you sure? Because I was thinking... Lisa, in conclusion... What advice do you have for clinicians and also for organisations that employ clinicians? Given the, the rates and the statistics, so as we know, um, Australian Bureau of Statistics, one in six women have experienced physical or sexual violence 
in a relationship and one in four have experienced emotional abuse. Men are also affected. Their rates are a little lower, but they're also affected. So when you think about the number of um, people we have employed as clinicians and within organisations, it, it really does blow my mind a bit considering the potential risk that might be playing uh, that might be playing out right under our noses. So you know, in a group of clinicians, in a group in an organisation, I think it's really just important to be aware, to be aware that there, this is a situation, that this is a risk that exists for people, um, and also we've got um, groups of people who we know are statistically at a greater risk of being um, impacted by this. So they are children. They're young women, pregnant women, women with disabilities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Um, they're the highest um, risk populations. And being an OT and working in allied health, they're, you know, they're, we often work with vulnerable populations and we often deliver services in people's homes. So, you know, clinicians really need to have um, you know, their own personal safety is paramount. And once again, it's the awareness piece about being aware of what might, might be going on behind closed doors, especially if it's a closed door that you have to walk into in order to deliver a service as an allied health professional, but also as an organisation to just be aware that this is a huge, um, this is a huge problem and it's so prevalent in our communities and we know with you know COVID these things are uh, domestic violence you know um, the the rates of people calling and requesting help from different services and community organizations has just skyrocketed so especially at this time we just need to be really aware that this is a situation that is happening um, and and make it making it okay for people to have conversations um, and to be very, I think for organisations to um, to do whatever they can to, you know, tackle these stigmas and, you know, and just say, yes, there are different populations are at risk, but this is a situation um, that anybody can find themselves in. Um, so it's really important, I think, to have open communication, have awareness and have sensitivity to these things as well. Um, because, you know, I know firsthand that you can perform, perform very highly at work and, and you can do that with nobody knowing the deplorable conditions that you're living under. I am, I am proof of that. Um, so let's make sure we've got organisations who are open, sensitive and aware and take nothing for granted. Absolutely. And Lisa, on that point, can I simply say this to you that, um, I want, no, 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 I was gonna say something else there, I won't, Lisa. <laughs> um, um, hmm. Lisa, thank you so much for not only your time today, but for sharing your story with us. It was probably not an easy story to share at times, but I do thank you for it. I know that I've learned a lot from it. I'm sure that everyone listening to this will have, will learn a lot from it and from your experience. So thank you so much. And in conclusion, 
it sounds to me like you are living out what you promised yourself and your daughter that you are making that beautiful life for your daughter yes every every day i get to live out that promise i made to the two of us six years ago and i am grateful for that and i'm also grateful for the opportunity to share my story so thank you